0: podcast we're here with a review collection of podcasts we're on episode 32 and we're here with a mary kingsley collection called a hippo banquet it is just i it's travis this week doing another solo episode uh ryan will be rejoining us at some point in the near future we hope we think Uh, Stay tuned for that. I'm I'm sure I'll promote that aggressively when he returns. Until that time, though, I'm here with another review of a Little Black Classics Penguin Collection book. As I said, it's Mary Kingsley, who is a Victorian writer, sort of an essayist, but I guess also nearly an academic, kind of ran in academic circles. And she famously wrote a collection of reflections and observations from her travels in West Africa in the, I believe, eighteen sixties or seventies. And so Penguin has collected some of that work into a mini fifty page thing called a Hippo Banquet, which is one of the names of the chapters in this one. And also just to clarify, I took a quick pause there to check Wikipedia, the foundational research hub of the Brothers Book Club podcast. That's sort of the informal nature of this uh of this thing we've created. It does say that the Travels in West Africa, her first publication was in 1897. She was actually born in 1860, so far later published than I would have thought. And she published another follow-up in 1899. And these are both taken, I believe, from Travels in West Africa. Let's talk about Mary Kingsley. I, I think while reading this, I'm not sure if other readers have the same reaction, but there was one connection that jumped out. And so today's review is going to be focused on that connection, and sort of compare and contrast sort of setup again and that connection is to indiana jones probably america's number one cultural icon for globe trotting for sort of adventuring around dealing with different civilizations and cultures uh usually unsuccessfully i guess somewhat successfully depends on how you interpret it we'll get to his legacy a little later Um, But when you're reading this collection, it just feels very adventure-y in the genre sense. It's Stranger in a Strange Land feeling. It's her trying to understand languages, cultures that she has no knowledge of immediately and sort of has to infer things. It's a lot of nature. It's a lot of nature is attacking her, and she's just just trying to endure a lot of the times. You know, attacks from... There's a really descriptive one in it with a leopard or a cheetah. I think it's a leopard. Yeah, it's a leopard. Uh, there's descriptions of elephant hunting rituals, and it just feels very much like she is in full observation mode, um, which I can see why in that respect or when you sort of get the tone and the genre of it in that way, why she was such a, a curiosity among academics, people studying cultures and history in England at the time. She was apparently very popular when she returned and, and published these works because people wanted to know her firsthand accounts. I think, too, the stronger, maybe stronger connection to Indiana Jones is in the spirit and energy of the text. She is, has an incredibly dry humor, um, she, I believe, the British expression. I hope this isn't like too fe- offensive an expression, but she, you know, takes the piss a lot. I think that's what I've heard. I've watched enough British soccer highlights to know that. I think, but yeah, she just she goofs a lot on these potentially horrible things that could have happened to her. Very dangerous si- situations. She makes light of a lot of it, not all of it, um, but quite a bit. And so I think the connections immediately jump out. Um, and I, to me, and I think to a lot of other readers, that would be kind of the first thing you would think about. Now, with that said, or established, let's talk about my Indiana Jones expertise, because I'm going to use him as sort of a vector to analyze this text with. I'm not an Indiana Jones expert or even a particular huge fan. I just think I've absorbed... Indiana Jones stories through cultural osmosis, I guess. I have seen most of the movies, I think three out of the four, including the most recent Alien ones when they tried to sort of reboot it with Shia LaBeouf, which I found largely a preposterous kind of silly movie. Um, the only one I've not seen is The Last Crusade, which also I've heard from from bigger fans that one actually might be one of the best, if not the best one, so that's too bad. Maybe I'll rent it. But for me, it's mostly been just snippets Trying to remember the movies, which I saw at this point like over a decade ago, most of those movies, um, you know, YouTube clips that come up every now and again. But I feel okay about the basics. I think, again, if you've been a fan of movies or film or whatever in the United States in the last 40 years, you just sort of have to know who Indy is, not if you you know care about him or find the movies compelling or whatever. You just sort of know. So I've tried to to draw out a couple of traits or key aspects of that character, and we're going to use them here to talk about Kingsley's work. Let's begin then with, I think, probably the key Jonesism, if we can make up that expression for today's episode, because sort of one of the most foundational parts of that character is just the charm of Indiana Jones. Um, The first shot of the first movie or something near it is of this student just gazing at him because he's beautiful. It's got kind of this awkward inappropriate sexual tension about it. Um, and that sort of permeates, though not maybe the sexual tension, but that, that charisma charm of him permeates a lot of the movies. You know, when you think about Harrison Ford in general, that's sort of what you got from his career with some very notable exceptions, I guess. Like, I love Blade Runner. I wouldn't say he's sexually charismatic in Blade Runner. He's sort of gruff, and uh, especially in the newest movie, the sequel. He has a certain a certainty and suave about him that makes his adventures come across as though he's never in severe peril, even when he's in danger, you know, he'll crack wise, very Han Solo-esque in that way, another probably of his most famous roles. And this to me is the best point of comparison to Kingsley as well. She cracks wise a lot to the point where the most common thing I wrote down as an annotation while I was reading this was just ha or ha-ha. Like it's, she's just always trying to trying to goof or make light of situations, Um, and I've pulled a lot of quotes, and I'll try and extrapolate some things for each of them. Uh, Let's start with one from page 34. She says, quote, "'10 or 12 feet of crashing, creaking timber, "'and then it flumped onto a lot of rotten, wet debris, "'and it had more snakes and centipedes among it "'than you had any immediate use for, "'even if you were a collector.'" And that's, you know, to most people, uh, to compare, for example, to Edgar Allan Poe from last week, right? Right that would have been such a great Poe moment of think of all the ways you can describe a writhing mass of centipedes and snakes and like really make someone feel sick instead so she's just like ah you know didn't have use for it like what's the what's the point of all that don't need that many snakes she's also very self-aware and it does not feel like a superhero's account at all i feel like this is a bit of a divergence because in indiana jones sometimes you just think this guy can't lose, he's going to do some crazy whip trick, and he's going to pull off some miraculous stunt to save the day, which he often does. This account, obviously being based on a real-world account anyway, does not feel that way, and she happily admits to her faults, you know, with frequency. On page 36, she says, quote, We each recognized, this is her in a new tribe she's meeting, She We each recognized that we belong to that same section of the human race with whom it is better to drink than to fight. Again, a pretty funny way to sort of cut the tension uh, of a scene that may have been incredibly awkward or who knows how they were responding to her, it seems like, in a sort of, and she perceived a threatening way. and But she just makes observations like that to kind of make light of it, to sort of, I guess, boost herself a little bit there, but just to, to cut the tension of the situation, which could, again, otherwise be described in a very gloomy or um, sort of hostile way. This... Uh, tone of hers and this personality probably works the best in this collection when she's describing the wildlife she encounters, which there's quite a lot of. She observes fauna as much as she can and describes it, talks a lot about the traveling inconveniences that they have and the canoes that they take, uh, talks a lot about wild animals they encounter, as one would if you were traveling in Africa for the first time. It seems like one of the most striking and immediate things uh, if you're an adventurer, Um She says on page 29, if I were an elephant, I would wear the tusks straight. Again, just turn, it's kind of a goofy personification of a, of a really imposing creature. I've never stood next to an elephant that I can remember. Maybe at a fair once, um... But anyway, and on another page, 29, she says that humans seem to have lost a great deal by choosing to have our arms shortened. And that's a comparison to gorillas, which she finds totally repulsive, but admires how they swing through the jungle with such efficiency. And so those kinds of light comments... You know, is she some sort of hardcore scientist, Darwinian, talking about evolution or something? No, she's making an offhand comment about the people's inefficiency and humanity in the jungle, how it's impossible for us to get around and, you know, contrast that with the gorillas who are just cruising. Uh, It's just kind of a bit of comical uh, cutting at her own, I don't know, insufficiencies in some way. There's also, and I think some of the quotes I've already used establish this, but there's also a good amount of kind of understatement, which I feel like is a cornerstone of of a British type of dry humor. Uh, When they arrive at this island that has a ton of hippopotamus and crocodiles at it, she says, quote, and the way the crocodiles and the hippo must have come up on the garden ground in the evening time could not have enhanced its charms to the average cautious man. And that's, I think, you know, in itself a quote that encapsulates the tone of a lot of this work. And I think for me it works pretty well. I mean, it's not full-blown Indiana Jones cracking wise at every turn. But it injects enough humor where you're not just doing sort of a scientist cold observations of a place or of a people. Or, you know, it's not like an anthropologist going to study cultures or something. And so in this case, it I think it kind of works tonally. It's definitely more readable Accessible, etc. Let's uh let's roll right into another Jonesism, a term that I'm not proud of, but I'm gonna stick with throughout this entire podcast now that I said it once. And that's capability. I think again, the first shots of I think it's Raiders of the Lost Ark is if him in a classroom, he's a professor. Uh, But he's also, I mean, obviously throughout the movie, he's capable in terms of surviving. He uses his whip-a-lot as a tool. He's on a runaway train car. He's capable. He's quick-thinking and quick-witted. And so a lot of it comes across as improv. You know, his planning might not be perfect, but he certainly comes up with a plan in the moment. This, to me, is maybe then the best point of contrast. Because, again, I think Kingsley comes off as a far more passive observer. And there's certainly, in her view or at least in the way she wrote this um, reflection, sort of a memoir, there's no, like, massive quest or something. She doesn't have a mission. You know, she's not stopping the Nazis from getting the Ark of the Covenant, which, again, being a realistic text based on her life, that's goes without saying. But that does change, you know, your perception of her as an adventurer. Um, she just comes across as, I don't know, a touch more human, I suppose. And this feeling of strangeness, or again, being a stranger, comes across a few times on page 20, for example, when they first get into a place um, with a -A FAN fan tribe, is what she calls them, the fan people. It might be pronounced a different way, but I'm going to stick with fan. She says, quote, for an hour and three quarters by my watch, I stood in the suffocating, smoky, hot atmosphere, listening to, but only faintly understanding the war of words and gesture that raged around us. And that is a bit more of a, compared to the quotes I would previously read, you know, a bit more intimidating sounding and sinister. Certainly these are, at times, unwelcome people that are, uh, where the the people who are from that region, the the native, like, tribes, are, like, rightfully skeptical of these people showing up. Um, And so the sort of tone of it, she doesn't come across as having some I'm going to concoct a brilliant plan now, I'm going to negotiate my way down, or I'm going to convince them, or demonstrate my skill to them, or anything like that. She sort of just lets the other people, the guides she's with, do their work, in a sense, and so it's very non-Jonesian in that way. She also fully admits to being less capable than the tribe, the fan, um, whom or who sort of guide her. And it's not clear in this collection where she's going. Also, by the way, I should have said that there's no the the way that Penguin picked up these things. There's no overarching mission uh, to the adventures or sort of like travel she's having. I think she wants to get somewhere to maybe a city or something. But at least to me, it wasn't clear what the overall thing was other than just traveling around Anyway, when they're traveling with some fan guides, she says, what saved us weaklings was the fans' appetites. Every two hours they would sit down and had a snack of a pound or so of meat and a guma apiece, followed by a pipe of tobacco. And I'm sure, you know, that fits the, uh, the old tea break that Brits are so famous for. As you can tell, I've, you know, it's not a tradition I'm a part of, just by the way I spoke of it. But this sort of not only makes her seem again just a touch more relatable it's it's a travel scenario we are all familiar with and can be grateful for when we're just outpaced by a more determined or capable person uh it just doesn't it makes her seem not the superhero which again in the jones movies that's he's nearly superhero status at at times not to say, though, she's not without her, her stronger suits in in the field or out there and trying to learn about new places and peoples. She's incredibly observant and writes well, and I think that's a really vague thing for me to say. I guess I should hammer down on that. I think it, it brings to life the places, um, and we'll, we're going to conclude with some controversial things, but she does do a pretty admirable job of bringing the places to life, I would say. I pulled one quote from page two. It's immediately in the text. And I think this is another one that just sort of represents the overall observational quality that she brings. Um, And I'll read it here in full. It starts, quote, to see hornbills on a bare sandbank is a solemn sight, but when they are dodging about in the hippo grass, they sink ceremony and roll and waddle, looking, my man said, for snakes and little sandfish, which are close in under the bank, and their killing way of dropping their jaws, I should say opening their bills, when they are alarmed, is comic. Uh, for those of you who follow our Instagram, that is the quote I am 100% using for the drawing this week, which I'm a little behind on. I had a vacation last weekend and couldn't get ahead. But it's just a vivid description. It has great little little bits of observation, the way that she goes from sort of it being a solemn, lonely thing to this comical, huge open bill, and they drop their jaws. It's I don't know. To me, it just speaks to the atmosphere of it and sort of sets up well the sort of places that she... Goes And the things that she likes to observe and the the level of detail she brings. Finally, too, I'll say in this capability segment, she's brave at the least. She admits in places that she doesn't use weapons or doesn't like guns much. She also criticizes one of the native tribes for... The way they, like, hunt elephants, which, frankly, I thought was just crafty and intelligent, but she seems to think it's not gamely or or it's not very honorable. Um, But she is brave. She fights a leopard at one point. Um, She describes it as, I think the leopard was going to spring on me, and I seized an earthen water cooler and flung it straight at it. It was a noble shot. It burst on the leopard's head like a shell, and the leopard went for bush one time. which was, you know, straight away. And so we will give her credit for that. Also, just for historical context, it was incredibly rare for any woman to travel alone to this degree in the 1880s or whenever it was. And so it said on, again, Wikipedia, props to Wikipedia Shouts, um, it said that she was frequently asked where her husband was. And it was just bizarre to everyone, both the Brits there and the natives, that she would be traveling alone. So the bravery is just sort of inherent in the work. I'm going to tack on this final point of comparison to Jones by stating his most famous line, or at least the one I love the most and the one I sympathize with the most. And it's, I hate snakes. It's the famous scene when he's dropped in the pit. I believe it's an old tomb and just covered. The whole thing is in snakes. It makes me recoil now uh, and get goosebumps just thinking about how disgusting that is to me personally. One of my great fears, um, and I think this just shows, though, a subtle vulnerability in him, which any great heroic figure needs. You know, if you think of any sort of legendary—I mean, we're in a time of comic book heroes, right? There's no comic book movie without a bit of a setback. That's just how conflict has to occur. And so there has to be some kind of underlying humanity. And I feel like, Jones, there are those moments that stand out. And he never—you know, he's bounding through these tombs and temples. He's searching for things. He's intelligent but it's never perfect. His planes never come off perfectly. And so, as I mentioned in the other one, there's sort of an improv quality to him and his character. Uh, I think Kingsley, too... Admits to being vulnerable is openly afraid of things and sort of talks through those things talks through aspects of her travels that are off putting to her like deeply frightening on page 51. She says do not mistake this for a sporting adventure. I no more thought it was a leopard than it was a lotus when I joined the fight and that's when she's going to protect her dog from a, an attacking leopard. She also says on 48, I can confidently say that I am not afraid of any wild animal until I see it, and then, well, I will yield to nobody in terror, which is a hilarious sort of almost oxymoronic uh, line there, a turn, and it does, again, show her sort of honest humor and admitted faults, but again, it's the kind of vulnerability you need of someone who is claiming to do either brave or bold things, or is taking an enormous risk, like she is. And so in that way, it comes across as pretty deeply human. So through those three sort of categories I set up, she does really well favor in terms of comparing favorably to Indiana Jones. Again, not a that's not a fictional character I have any strong affinity for or love for, but she does sort of hold up as an original, real-life, Jonesian-type figure, On his Wikipedia page, I noticed that there are a bunch of professors listed as potential quote, real world, quote, unquote, inspirations for Indiana Jones, and she was not on there, which maybe that's going to be my new quest. I will get her added because she seems like a very worthy point of comparison, though who knows if that's what, you know, Spielberg or whomever was thinking of. Now, I would be remiss, though, to not address a larger cultural legacy question, uh, and that has to do with imperialism and just racism. This is something that it becomes very prominent early in this text as well, and it's why I have not rated this collection yet, which if you had stopped listening before this moment, you would probably guess this is a three, and I think a lot of its qualities and sort of voice and the narration could be considered a three, but you know, there's cultural legacy stuff to compete with here, Um, and in in terms of the Indiana Jones legacy, let's start there, the Ringer, which is a kind of pop culture sports website they do a little micro podcast called the hottest take which i enjoy it's been it's kind of a weird saga for their website to put this on it's very personal at times they have a writer and podcast guy uh, jason concepcion who hit the very first one of these hottest take podcasts was about canceling indiana jones that was his you know quote unquote hottest take was that we have to get rid of can- and just cancel indiana jones and he lists many reasons why this would be I'll just quickly i summarized a bunch of them. Number one, he's a colonialist raider who steals heritage and cultural objects of oppressed people to just dump them in museums somewhere and where they'll just sit. two, there's no partnership with the peoples um who he likes to investigate and steal from ultimately. Three, there's the troubling hints of sexual relationships with the students he has. That one is, feels kind of, that's like one scene in one movie, I think, unless, again, I'm misremembering, which could be true. Uh, four, he embezzles funds from the university so he can go on adventures and escapades, which is, yeah, that's you know ethically problematic. And then five, he's, he murders people. Now, Kingsley definitely never does that. She hits a leopard with a chair, or was it with a, a vase or something, but she is not an animal or human murderer. And so at least we can cross that one off her list. Uh, But many of the others, you know, at least the first, second, and maybe the fourth one to a degree, but the first and second could be raised against this text also to a degree. Now, again, this is not a research-heavy podcast. We're not exactly an academic endeavor here. And so my Wikipedia level of research quality did reveal a complicated legacy, but who knows how thorough those pages are. Um, it definitely had some quotes about her being a sort of social Darwinian, the the normal imperialist line of thinking, we need to bring culture to these peoples, we need to bring civilization, you know, capital C civilization to them. And so she has quotes that ring as extremely imperialist and racist. Then again, her legacy in the most immediate sense was to illuminate the humanity of people in West Africa to English people, to British people during times of colonialism and imperialism, which is a noble quest. And I guess it would, it's the question of outcomes versus sort of motivation or ideology. It seems like the outcome was objectively that she portrayed the people as, as fully human and worthy of respect consideration um, and not theft uh, in the literal like economic sense but again, there's some quotes here that I'll read through. I'll ultimately let you be the determinant if you you know, want to engage in her work or not. Um, here's a couple of them I can talk through. The collection, for whatever it's worth, wastes no time getting to this sort of legacy controversy point. Because on page three, I literally wrote down my first annotation of the whole collection. Uh, says, here we go. Because any time you're dealing with imperialist and colonialist times and then accounts of going to Africa... You have to expect some kind of racism and imperialism in some way, I would assume anyway. But anyway, on page three, she says, I hate to have them killed anyhow, these birds, and particularly in the barbarous way in which these natives kill them. Now, the word barbarous has its own sort of complicated history as a term used against non-white European peoples, um, especially those who end up being colonized by... European societies and civilizations Um, She later calls the fan tribe That earlier, by the way, I gave that quote How she compliments their skill And their kind of hardiness And their knowledge of the surroundings She also calls them on 18 A set of wild, wicked-looking savages And, quote, dangerous savages And that one's on page 30 Terms that are unambiguously othering uh, Pretty racist, if you want to dig into it And look at the history of terminology like that And so I'm left to wonder, is this more honest reaction kind of, not admirable is not the right word, certainly not morally admirable, but you definitely don't want to repaint the account. If this was her honest reaction, then it's almost better that she wrote it this way. Obviously, as a modern reader, we'll have to interpret it in the context and we can make our own moral, ethical determinations, Um, but it does come across in that sort of directly ideologically you know, racist and superior sort of tone, and um, that's that's what comes across. Her more complimentary moments, um, of which I already shared one, do also exist. Um, she p- kind of generalizes West Africans in a very broad way, and again, is sort of a, it's a compliment paired with a bit of an undercut. And it's on twenty-two. She says, although their ideas are as usual with West Africans, far ahead of their language, which uh, is a concept worthy of its own unpacking. I, again, don't think our pods the one to do it, but this idea of sort of seeing sophistication in civilizations or, in, or seeing sophistication in social groups that initially seemed uh, very other to you, seem very foreign to you, um, but eventually coming to understand culturally deeper connections or worth or value and not measuring, you know, other societies in one specific lens or through one specific, usually economic um, sort of lens, is, you know, noble and it does show consideration on her part. I don't think she digs into those ideas much in this collection. She kind of just leaves it at that. And so if you're looking for something more cultural or you're looking for more observations from her that are uh, a little bit deeper and reflective. They weren't really here. It kind of just keeps the travelogue narrative going and moving. Um, But that quote is in there. Also on page 39, she does admit that, quote, they showed her many things. And in that case, many things refers to just forest survival, like practical skills that she almost certainly seems like did not have coming into it about how to start fires and gather proper food, things like that. And so there is a, you know, hint of admiration in there, or at least uh, acknowledgement that she, in this case, is a total outsider that needs help, that desires assistance and expertise. The final quote I'll leave you with um, on this complicated legacy topic is on 46, and it's about this ritual of elephant farming that they have for the ivory, and it's they have this method, this tribe, which I don't know if she names, it might be the fan again, but um, she's observing this tradition and how they they hunt the elephants down and kind of corral them, and she calls it, she criticizes it many times um, in a very sort of like upper-class British way. It speaks in terms of nobility and honor and everything, which again to me comes across as just like ludicrous. Anyway, um, the tribe has a a shaman who sort of tells the people through prophecy in a way where to go and how to find the elephants and this is easily a moment that sort of a British imperialist could harshly criticize you know this isn't science this isn't a Christian's view this is you know who knows what the criticisms could be um, but she comes across pretty non in a pretty non-judgmental way on 46 she says in my opinion, His decision fundamentally depends on his knowledge of the state of the poisoning the animals are in, but his version is that he gets his information from the forest spirits. And she sort of just leaves it, to me, in that very neutral sense of, I think he's interpreting this, but he tells me another thing, and that's his account. And, you know, there's no judgment in there. There's no language of judgment one way or the other. She just weighs in on what she believes is happening versus what the shaman tells her is happening. And so... You know, it's definitely not as a whole a neutral account, but I thought I'd put in some other quotes just to show the subtleties of it. I don't think painting Kingsley's account as one intensely social Darwinian or, or big imperialist text would be quite right. Though, ultimately, I you know gave you those quotes, so you could decide whether this is something you're curious enough about or not. And in that sense, I'm going to end with a review. As always, our system is one through three. A one means avoid this, definitely don't read it, not worth it. Two means qualified recommendation. uh, So we'll give some caveats. And a three means definitely read this, 100%, go seek it out, go find it. This then, in a sense, is kind of a definitive two. Uh, I didn't regret reading it at all found the prose pretty engaging. Again, she has kind of this fun tone and sort of this kind of easy-go-lucky, undercutting British comedy humor to it. And then again, if these topics, you know, of imperialism are difficult for you or you just don't want to engage with them or something, that's, you know, perfectly fine. It's not some essential text. I didn't come away from this thinking it will alter your perception of really any of it. It was just sort of a enjoyable travelogue from a person kind of doing it for the first time and being a pioneer in her own way, which is, you know, impressive for sure. And hey, let's give her her due credit on the uh, Indiana Jones Wikipedia page because even if she was not a direct touchstone of inspiration, gosh, there's a lot of indie uh, in her and in her collection. So if uh, you're an Indiana Jones fan, I'm just going to throw this out there and say it's a three. Why not get into it? If you're not, yeah, stick with a two. And maybe if you get curious, pick up her Travels in West Africa collection. That is going to do it for us on today's episode. Almost hit 30 minutes, I think, according to the recording, which is, yeah, impressive in, in a sense. could pat myself on the back. Didn't mean to keep these solo episodes quite that long, but hey, if we have enough material to get through, why not? Next week, we have coming up a massive author, one who I've never connected with deeply but respect, and that is Jane Austen. Thankfully, though, and I haven't actually started reading it at all, but thankfully, the collection itself is kind of a unique one. It's not really popular works that people would know, like Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility. It is uh, teenage things, or I guess I should say writings that she had as a teenager, these sort of goofy, I guess, satire stories. And they included in the collection her actual misspellings and, I guess, kind of puns play on words. Anyway, I'm fascinated to read it, because of all the Jane Austen I've had to read, none of it is from when she was a teenager, I don't think, or at least not a young teenager, and none of it is in this like short story kind of fun format, so I'm quite intrigued. I hope you join us for that episode, and maybe I'll weigh in on some other Jane Austen topics. I do have one friend in Charlotte who did her master's thesis on Jane Austen. Maybe it's time to tag in somebody else for a, uh, for another supplementary episode. We'll stay tuned and see if that happens. Until you come around and visit us next week, we will see you between the classics.